3: This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI HC vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me again on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. See you next week. <laughs>
0: Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's December 22nd. Alfred Dreyfus was wrongfully convicted of selling military secrets to Germany on this day in 1894. He was sentenced to military degradation and exile for life. Most English speakers in the United States say his name Dreyfus and call this the Dreyfus Affair, but in French, it is a lot more like Dreyfus Dreyfus had decided to join the military as a young man after witnessing the German occupation of his hometown and the French defeat in the Franco-Prussian War. He graduated with honors from École Polytechnique, and he became the first Jewish officer on the general staff at the headquarters of the French Ministry of War— On December 26th of 1894, a document was intercepted that was addressed to the German military attache, Lieutenant Colonel Max von Schwarzkoppen. And then that October, Dreyfus was charged with this crime. There were a lot of reasons that the military had for suspecting him. He was from Alsace, which had been under German control since the Franco-Prussian War. He had access to the information in question thanks to his position, his handwriting was supposedly similar to the handwriting in the documents, and he was Jewish. Several openly anti-Semitic officers said quite plainly that being Jewish made him suspect. He was convicted in a closed court-martial and publicly degraded on January fifth, 1895. He was then transported to prison and ultimately held in solitary confinement on Devil's Island. His family, especially his wife and his brother, believed his innocence from the very start, and he steadfastly maintained that he was not guilty. They fought for a retrial for him, and gradually members of the general public started to call for a retrial as well. Emile Zola's famous Jacques letter, published in a newsletter called La Rue*, was printed on January 13th of 1898, This letter took up the whole front page and it accused the military and others of a cover-up. He was put on trial for defaming the French military, convicted of libel and sentenced to a year in prison and 3,000 francs. He was forced into exile in London. Then Georges Picard, chief of intelligence, found compelling evidence that another French officer, Ferdinand Valsin Esterhazy, was the real culprit. And this was true. That was the real culprit. This man had offered his services to von Schwarzkoppen on July 20th, 1894. He had been paid on August 15th, and this was his message, not Dreyfus's that had been intercepted. Picard was ordered not to pursue this matter, but he continued on in defiance of that order. There was eventually a court-martial, but Esterhazy was acquitted, and Picard was removed from his position and sent on a series of dangerous missions to get him out of the way. This blossomed into a major schism in France. The Dreyfusards and anti-Dreyfusards lined up for and against reopening the case. This led to all kinds of political art cartoons, many of them extremely anti-Semitic and full of disparaging stereotypes was also tied up in thoughts about the military, with the Dreyfusards wanting the military to be overseen by Parliament, and the anti-Dreyfusards arguing that this whole affair was damaging the military. This all spread well beyond France, with writers and composers and artists and world leaders and other prominent people all taking sides— In August of 1898, it was discovered that one of the documents that had been used to convict Dreyfus was a forgery, and one officer admitted that he had fabricated this document in order to get a conviction. A retrial was held in June of 1899. Once again, Dreyfus was convicted, but this time he was given a reduced sentence. This led to international outrage. He was offered a pardon not long after that because he was in poor health, but he and his family continued to seek exoneration. They didn't just want him free, they wanted his name cleared. Another retrial was held in 1903 and finally in 1906, Dreyfus was exonerated. He was innocent of all charges. He was restored to his position of major. Picard was also reinstated and promoted to brigadier general. And the French army publicly declared that Dreyfus was innocent. They did that in 1995. Before we close out today's episode, for the next week, my co-host on Stuff You Missed in History Class, Holly Fry, will be filling in for me on this show. Because of the very weird time travel nature of this podcast, that was to help me cover some time out of the office back in November. So thanks, Holly. Thanks also to Christopher Hasiotis for his research work on today's show, and to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get podcasts. Tune in tomorrow for one of the world's most famous patrons.
5: Hello again. It's Eve's and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast that truly believes no day is boring. The day was December 22, 1885. Ito Hirobumi became the first prime minister of Japan. Ito's father was the adopted son of a minor samurai. Ito, born in 1841, grew up under the feudal military government of the Tokugawa shogunate. The Japanese economy fared well during the Tokugawa period. Commerce and manufacturing grew, and the merchant class profited off of this. Agricultural production was important, but as the economy flourished, it was not as fruitful as other sectors. The Tokugawa shogunate made efforts in fiscal reform, but all the socioeconomic unrest weakened it. And though Japan still had conservative isolationist policies, it was increasingly influenced by Western powers to dump its seclusion policy to benefit from global trade and better technology. The government sent Ito to University College London in 1863, and when he returned to Japan the next year, he began supporting Western influence in the society and economy. In 1868, the Tokugawa shogunate fell and the emperor was restored to power. After the Meiji Restoration, Japan opened its borders and began to go through a period of major political, social, and economic change. Ito had connections with leaders in early Meiji Japan, such as Kido Takayoshi and Okubo Toshimichi, and through those, he was able to go to the U.S. on government assignments and to Europe on the Iwakara mission to research things like taxation and treaty revision. Ito was appointed a junior British counselor in the new Department of Foreign Affairs after the Meiji Restoration. And in 1870, he was sent to the U.S. to study Western currency. When he got back to Japan, he helped change the Japanese taxation system. Soon, Ito was made a British counselor at the Ministry of Public Works. And he continued to rise in rank. In 1875, the emperor appointed him the chairman of the first assembly of the governors of the Japanese prefectures. When Okubo Toshimichi, a powerful Meiji leader and confidant of Ito, was assassinated, Ito took his place as Minister for Home Affairs. After forcing rival Okuma Shigenobu out of the government, Ito studied European constitutions and convinced the government to adopt a constitution. He helped draft the Japanese Meiji Constitution, which the emperor proclaimed in 1899. The following year, the National Diet, Japan's bicameral legislature, was established. And on December 2nd, 1885, after he established a cabinet system of government, Ito became the first prime minister of Japan. He stayed in the position until he resigned three years later, but he served as prime minister three other times after that. As prime minister, Ito saw Japan's victory in the Sino-Japanese War, helped Japan deal with the Anglo-Japanese Treaty of Commerce and Navigation, and organized a pro-government political party called the Riken Seyuki. Ito was also appointed as the first resident general of Korea in 1905. Ito wanted Japan to control Korea as a protectorate after the Russo-Japanese War and suppressed Korean nationalism, but he did not want to formally annex the country. In October of 1909, Ito was assassinated by a Korean independence movement activist at a train station. I'm Eve Jeffco, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you've seen any good history memes lately, you can send them to us on social media at TDIHC Podcast. Or if you want to get a little more fancy, you can send us an email at thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you again tomorrow.
4: Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that believes there's no time like the present to learn about the past. I'm Gabe Luzier and today we're celebrating the late December miracle birth of a baby gorilla. The day was December 22nd, 1956. For the first time ever, a live gorilla was born in captivity. She was given the name Colo, a combination of Columbus and Ohio, the city and state where she was born. Before Colo's birth, zookeepers didn't know if it was possible for baby gorillas to be born or raised in captivity. It had never happened before, despite their best efforts. At the time, all of the gorillas found in zoos around the world had been captured in the wild while they were young and easier to handle. Because gorilla families are highly protective of their young, the hunters who supplied the zoos typically killed all the adults in a troop. The young gorillas commanded a high price, and with their parents out of the way, they were easier to catch. Kolo's birth marked the beginning of the end of that brutal practice and ushered in a new era of guerrilla conservation. However, it's interesting to note that Colo's birth wasn't the result of an official breeding program. The whole thing was an accident, and likely wouldn't have happened at all if not for a part-time zookeeper and veterinary student named Warren Dean Thomas. When Colo's parents were captured and brought to the Columbus Zoo in early 1951, They were kept in separate cages for several years. Warren Thomas thought the two gorillas, Mac and Millie, might be happier if they could interact a little. So one day in 1956, he put them together at night, without permission, and then split them up again the next morning. Sure enough, the gorillas had mated during their encounter, and soon after, Millie showed signs of being pregnant. On the morning of December 22nd, Thomas noticed something on the floor of Millie's cage. It turned out to be an amniotic sac containing a newborn baby gorilla that wasn't breathing. Thomas cut the umbilical cord and started administering mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. A few tense moments later, the infant started breathing again and was quickly moved to an incubator. Things were touch and go for the first few days, and it was unclear if Colo would survive the week. The zoo superintendent, Earl Davis, told the press, quote, We're just treating it like a human baby, and I'm pestering all my doctor friends for suggestions. If she can go four days, I think we'll have it made. Four days later, on December 26th, Davis gave an update on her progress and the world breathed a sigh of relief. He said that not only had Kolo survived, she was learning fast and was already causing trouble for her keepers. Apparently, she took great pleasure in knocking over the water bucket inside her incubator. Kolo's birth was recognized as the momentous event it was. Zoo officials from around the globe called to offer their congratulations, with some even suggesting that a baby shower was in order. The mayor of Columbus was of a similar mind. He reportedly passed out cigars that said, It's a girl. Meanwhile, the city's paper celebrated the birth by launching a naming contest. The winning entry would receive a $50 cash prize as well as a $100 savings bond donated by actor Clark Gable. Colo soon became a celebrity in her own right. At one month old, she made her first TV appearance on a show called Wide, Wide World. During the program, she was introduced to Mrs. Howard Brown of Zanesville, the lucky winner of the contest that gave Colo her name. As she grew and developed, Colo provided the world with much more than entertainment. Her life filled crucial gaps in our understanding of the gorilla life cycle, including their gestation period, which we now know is about eight and a half months. Over the years, the study of Kolo also changed the modern approach to zookeeping. For example, because Kolo's parents had been captured at an early age, they never learned parenting skills in the wild. As a result, they were largely indifferent to Kolo, and even afraid of her at times. Kolo's keepers tried to fill in for her parents as best they could, and thanks to what they learned from the experience, zoos today now let gorillas raise their own young when born in captivity. As for Kolo, she became a mother herself three times over. Her daughter, Emmy was the first second-generation gorilla born in captivity. In total, Kolo lived to see the birth of three children, 16 grandchildren, 12 great-grandchildren, and 3 great-great-grandchildren. She passed away peacefully in her sleep on January 17, 2017, at the age of 60, making her the oldest gorilla in the world at the time. Debate continues over whether gorillas should be kept in captivity at all, But thanks to Colo's example, the ones that are have a much better chance of living longer, happier lives. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to send them to me at day at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.
3: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.